Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And there's some like serious, golden, beautiful, biblical truth in here today. So we want to be excited about God's Word. <clears throat> Father, as we... Uh, as we approach this time in your word, we do ask that you'd wake up our hearts, just wash away all of the, the busyness of our week, and let us now focus completely on you, understanding that, that your word right now has this power to cut to the, right, to the very core of us and minister right where we need. And above all, like we get this time to meet with our creator. Well, what a blessed thing. You're going to come and anoint your word, and we get to sit in your presence and enjoy you. So, Lord, would you speak to us, your church, now? We declare our absolute dependence upon you, and we long to meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in Romans chapter 1 still. We are continuing our study through the book of Romans. And if you remember back to last week, we opened up a couple of verses verses uh, 16 and 17, that we said are the theme verses for the book of Romans. And they're the theme verses in this way. Pretty much everything after verse 16 and 17 is explaining verse 16 and 17. So 16 and 17 are these big statements, and then everything after that is unpacking the truth of the gospel for us. So let's just read 16 and 17, and our main focus today will be 17. It says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Last week, we began with our focus pretty much on verse 16, if you remember, and we talked about the fact that we should not be ashamed of the gospel, right? That we ought to have this heart for the lost and this holy boldness to share the most important message that anybody on the planet could ever hear, and that is the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins, rose to prove that He and He alone has power over the grave. And then we observed there in verse 16 why Paul had this holy boldness and he was not ashamed of the gospel. And it tells us that the gospel itself has the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes. Meaning that the power, I mean that the gospel has power built into it, right? That God will anoint his word. We don't have to be the most of persuasive of people and we don't have to be the most well-spoken of people when we try to deliver the gospel. What we need to do is be what? Diligent, right? Diligent to share the gospel that has changed our lives and to share with people how their lives can be changed as well. At the end of verse 16, there's this phrase that we did not cover, and it says that these truths of the gospel are for the Jew first and then for the Greek. Some of your translations will say for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. The reason that we didn't cover this is recently I did a whole message on this, if you remember back to the book of Acts. When we were in Acts chapter 13, we observed that every time Paul went into a city, 
he would go to the synagogue first. He would go to the Jewish people first. And whenever he was rejected there, he would then turn to the Gentiles. And at that time, we did a message called Why the Jew First, explaining why Paul was doing this. There was both a personal reason and a theological reason that Paul was doing that. If you're interested, that message is on the website, on iTunes, and it was actually embedded in the bulletin this week. Plenty of opportunity to get that. And it'd be a good message to listen to before Tuesday, because on Tuesday, we're going to gather at the Brand's house to pray for the nation of Israel, and it would give you a little theological background why that's so important. Today, our primary focus will be there on verse 17, where it says, for in it, and and the subject there is the gospel, so the in it is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in case you don't know, this verse is an extremely significant verse when it comes to church history. In fact, God in the 16th century used this verse to change his church forever. In the year 1515, a virtually unknown German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther was studying the book of Romans, and he was going to teach it to some guys there in the monastery. And when he came across verse 17, God opened his heart to the truth that there is freedom in the gospel that the gospel was meant to set men free and not to bind them up. And that truth that God gave Martin Luther at that time sparked a revolution that we now call the Protestant Reformation, right? And we're a Protestant church. We're not a Catholic church. We're not an Eastern Orthodox church. We're a Protestant church. So we are the product of what God did through Martin Luther at the time. The backstory to it is that in the 16th century, the Catholic church had become had become incredibly corrupt at that time. It was teaching in an effort to cast fear across people that God was only really this angry and vengeful God. And that even the followers of Christ, for every sin that they committed, were always under the danger of hell. So they lived in a constant fear and under constant condemnation. Anytime they had a, a thought or a, a sin in their life, they're like, oh no, I'm, I'm definitely going to hell now. I better rush back over to the church and get absolved of that sin. And it was so heavy at the time that the Catholic Church then, and, and not now, they don't do this any longer, but in the 16th century, they began to sell what was called indulgences. And that meant that If you had sinned, or if you wanted to sin, you could go to a Catholic priest and buy an indulgence that absolved you of the sin that you had committed or were about to commit. And so they held them under this heavy feeling of condemnation and would then sell them an indulgence for the right amount of money. And there was then cast across the people this real heaviness. God is always angry at us. God is always just waiting. He's he's on edge up there with a big stick. And if you sin, he's getting ready to crack you. And this was the the Christianity that Martin Luther grew up under. And if you read any of his early stuff, he lived under constant torment because he had a real sin sensitivity, a real consciousness of God in this way. And he knew himself as a sinner. So what he did in an effort 
to, to, to deal with that was he toiled and he served and he jumped through every religious hoop that he could jump through, even becoming a monk, thinking that that was going to get him where he needed to be with God. And he did everything that he could to try to find approval and favor with God. But what he found was that no amount of effort, no amount of work, and no amount of struggle, and no amount of religious hoops was, re- was relieving him of his guilty conscience. He still had this deep sense of how sinful he was. And he saw no way that this angry, vengeful God would ever set him free from the flames of hell. And so he was utterly tormented until he studied verse 17. When he came across verse 17 and he read that the righteous come to God by faith, it set him free. That that the righteousness of God was available to him by faith and not by works, not by hoops, not by toiling, not by torment. It changed his life. And then God used it to change the church because Luther took on the entire Catholic church with the truth that faith in Jesus Christ sets you free from condemnation. Not not coming to Christ puts you under a heavy burden of condemnation. We'll we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But the first thing that you and I see in verse 17 is that it says that in the gospel, that's the subject there, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. And there's two ways in which, or two senses in which, God's righteousness is revealed to us in the Word of God. Two different ways God's righteousness is revealed. One of them is this way, in His divine character. The major purpose in God giving us His Word, the major purpose in us having the Bible is so that God could reveal himself to humanity, correct? And the major thing that God has revealed in his word to humanity is his character. Now, there are other ways that we can know certain things about God. We get deeper into Romans chapter 1. It's going to tell us that we can know of his divine power by what he's created. We get into chapter 2. It's going to say that he's written his law upon our hearts, that God's given us this moral law written upon our hearts. So through those, we know certain things about God. But to know his true character, we have to turn to the word of God. So he gives us the word of God so we'd understand who he is in his character. And one of the major things that God reveals about his character in the word of God is his righteousness. We would have no other way of knowing that God is righteous apart from his word. And when we say that God is righteous, this is what we mean. That he is only ever right. That his intentions are only ever good. And that he is absolutely and completely free from sin and corruption. I think Deuteronomy 32, 4 does a good job with it. You'll see it here. He's the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He's a faithful God who does no wrong how just and upright he is. The point here is that that's just who he is. God's righteousness is who he is. It's his very essence. He can't be 
anything else except good and right because it's just who he is. Now, here's the problem that we have. Righteousness is not only God's character, it's also God's requirement. Righteousness is not only God's character, but it's also His requirement for us to be able to approach Him. We must be righteous if we're going to approach Him and have a relationship with Him. The book of Leviticus lays this out for us. The book of Leviticus is giving us the law of Moses. And in Leviticus 11.44, we have a little bit of a commentary to the law. And it says this, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy just as I am holy. And to that we say, ouch, right? Be holy the same way that, that God is holy. Yet he lays that out as his righteous standard that is required of us to approach him. Then he goes on through the book of Leviticus to lay out 613 commandments in the Mosaic law that his people are supposed to follow in an effort to be holy the way that he is holy. But what's the problem with that? Nobody could keep that law, could they? Every single person fell well short of the righteous standard of God. But do you know that that was the purpose in the law? The whole purpose, the whole point of God giving us the Old Testament law was to show us that no one of us could ever keep the righteous standard of God. To show us the vast difference between a holy God and a sinful people, which we are. To reveal to us the chasm that lies between us and God. In fact, in the book of Galatians, it says because the Galatians were trying to now find themselves being perfected by the law. They got saved by faith, and Paul's writing to correct them. Oh, foolish Galatians who came to, to God by faith, are you now going to be perfected by the law? So they've decided they're going to start keeping the law now. And Paul writes to them and says, you know, you're missing the point of the law. The law was to point out that you can't be righteous. And he goes on there in, in Galatians 3.24 to say that the Old Testament law was meant to be a tutor, or another word used there is a schoolmaster. The law was to take you to school, right? To lead you to Christ, that you might be justified by faith. It was to take you to school to show you that, that no matter how hard you tried, you were going to always fall short of the righteous standard of God and to show us that no one of us has righteousness in and of ourselves, that we can't work for it, we can't earn it, we can't be good enough, do enough, and jump through enough hoops. Our righteousness isn't going to be righteous enough. Isaiah gives us a sense of that in Isaiah 64, 6, when he says this, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, the best we can do, they're nothing but filthy rags. Context and the point there is that our righteous attempts compared to God are but filthy rags. And what that means for humanity then is it leaves us with no approach to God based on our own virtue. 
We don't have a righteousness that is righteous enough to approach a holy God. Now that brings us to the second way that God reveals himself in Scripture and his righteousness in Scripture. And I think the second way is the way that Paul is talking about here in verse 17. The first way that God reveals his righteousness is in his divine character. But the second way that God reveals his righteousness is his divine achievement, his divine achievement, meaning his saving intervention of us. Jesus has achieved righteousness for us by taking our penalty upon himself. Somebody please say amen. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus became sin with our sinfulness, that we might become righteous with his righteousness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 there that he made him who knew no sin. Jesus had never sinned. He made him who who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What that means then is that on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. He was, if you will, clothed in our sin, and he bore what was meant to be our wrath, and he endured what was meant to be our separation from God, and he took upon himself our penalty and our punishment for sin. So then we could be forgiven of sin and be clothed with his righteousness. He was clothed with our sin so that he could pay that price, and we could be clothed then with his righteousness. That's what it says in 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live in his righteousness. It's by his wounds that you and I are healed. It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, That people, you and I, are counted as righteous. Not that we are righteous and not of ourselves, but we're counted as righteous, not because of our works, but because of faith in God who forgives sinners. So the righteousness that you and I now have, it's not a righteousness of our own, is it? The righteousness of Christ that has been placed upon us. Now, here's the beauty of it. So that now, when you and I stand before God in judgment, on the day that you and I die, when we stand before Him, all He will see in us is the righteousness of His Son covering us. Thank you, Jesus. Can you imagine standing before God according to your own moral standard, your own sin, your own trying to do it on your own? Man, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. I get to stand before God Almighty in the righteousness of His Son covering me. That's why the Bible says this. We studied this verse a couple weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning here. Colossians 1.22 For He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in the physical body. And as a result, He has brought you into His own presence 
You couldn't come into his presence in your own righteousness, but now he has brought you into his own presence. And look at what it says. And you are holy, you are blameless, and you stand before him without a single fault. Now, it's important that we understand that none of us are holy, blameless, or without a single fault in and of ourselves. We're not holy and blameless and without a single fault because we have done so wonderfully. Our righteousness compared to God's righteousness, the Bible told us, is what? A bunch of filthy rags. But Christ's righteousness now covers us so that in His righteousness we stand holy, blameless, and without a single fault. Thank you, Jesus. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Alba J. McLean, I like that name. And he said this, he said, a man has no righteousness, but God in the gospel has provided a righteousness. And he gives it to all men if they'll only take it. This fact makes Christianity different than every other religion the world has ever seen. In every great scheme to save men, it has failed on this one point. Its success depended on man's righteousness. He's saying every other world religion has failed on one point, that it depended on man's righteousness, when in reality, there is no righteousness in man. Christianity attacks the problem at the point of righteousness. It recognizes man has no righteousness and then brings the righteousness of God and clothes that man in this righteousness, and saves them by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness that was revealed through the gospel. Christ's righteousness then placed upon us. The second half of verse 17 says this, though. It says in verse 17, the righteousness of God will be revealed. But then it says, from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The point here is this, that we are both saved by faith, but then we're also intended to live by faith. The Christian life was meant to be from faith at the beginning to faith at the end. From start to finish, it was meant to be all by faith which is an important point for us because there are some that seem to have um, understood Christianity to be you get saved by faith, then you go to church on a Sunday morning, sit in a seat, and faith is over. That's it. You just sit there, you listen, then you leave church, faith part is over, and that's not what it was meant to be. It was meant to be faith from the beginning to the end. From the beginning, we're saved by faith. Nobody ever got saved that didn't get saved by faith. Faith is required for our salvation. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The only way you got saved is through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that any one of us can boast. Nobody in this room that's saved can boast in your salvation. If you got saved, it was sheer grace through faith. But once you've gotten saved, you're not done with faith. You're not finished with faith. You certainly got saved by faith, but now you are meant to live by faith. And the Christian life was always meant to be this continuous walk 
in faith. It begins with saving faith, but the whole rest of your life was meant to reflect a trust in God. Here's how it kind of plays out for us. When you and I got saved, I'm guessing in your life it was much like mine. God called you to what we would call now baby steps, but at the moment they seem quite big, right? You got saved and then God began to deal with things in your life. Um, maybe it was a, a relationship you were in that you weren't supposed to be in, an ungodly relationship. You got saved and God said, that needs to go. And all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, this is a giant leap of faith, but I got to break this thing off. Or, or maybe you had a job that was maybe not so above board and you were doing shady stuff. And all of a sudden you got saved and you decided, you know what, I have to part with these ways. I, I can't live like this anymore. And at the moment it was a giant step of faith. Maybe it was sharing your faith with somebody. Maybe you got saved and, and now you're going to go to this Bible study, you're going to go to this church or whatever, but now you got to tell your best friend or your mom or whoever that you got saved and that's a big step of faith. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I now have to tell my family that have known me this way, that I've you know, gone 180 degrees and now I'm going to live this way. And that was a huge step of faith for you. Maybe it was, I don't know for a lot of people, it's like the first time anybody asked you to pray out loud. That was a huge step of faith for you. Like you went to a Bible study and somebody said, would you mind opening in prayer? And you just broke out in sweat. You're like, oh my God. And it was a big thing for you. But, but here's hopefully what happened in your life. Hopefully you have matured after some time walking with the Lord that that's not a big deal for you anymore. And those things have now become normal for you. That, that relationship that was a big deal that you got rid of, nowadays you wouldn't even think of having a relationship like, yeah, like, that's no big deal for me. Sharing my faith, not nearly as big a deal anymore. If somebody at my office comes up and says, you know, hey, why do you got a you know, fish bumper sticker there? And you tell them about Jesus, it's not that big of a deal. Praying out loud is not a big deal for you anymore. Hopefully you have matured past that place. And by design, here's what happens. When you step out in the small thing, you start to get normalized in that. It starts to be comfortable to you. And then what does God do? He calls you to another step of faith. And so your life then becomes from faith to faith. It was a little step of faith. Seemed big at the moment, but it's not that big a deal anymore. Then he had another step of faith. And when you heard about that one, you're like, oh my goodness, not again. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing it over and over until the day you die. I'm going to call you from one scary step of faith to another scary step of faith to another scary step of faith. And so some of you guys right now are facing that and you need to step into that next scary step of faith. For some of you, maybe it's, you know, teaching. Maybe you're supposed to go down to children's ministry and teach a class or down a youth group. Maybe you're supposed to join Celebrate Recovery and share your testimony there, some of those things. Some of you guys are supposed to lead a home group in here right now. Some of you guys I've asked to preach up here before and you go, oh my gosh. I'm telling you, it's ter terrifying up here, right? But, but you guys... I've asked some of you guys to preach, and some of you guys are like, it's too big a step of faith for me. For some of you, it's, it's discipling somebody else. It's this idea that I'm going to walk up to somebody and say, you know what? God told me that, that, that I should probably start to disciple you. Not probably. If God told you, you're supposed to do it. But, but you feel this sense in which you're now supposed to start pouring into somebody, but you feel like it's this giant, scary step. Like, do you want to meet with me and I'm going to start mentoring you? What? That's like, it sounds weird coming out of your mouth and that's a big step of faith for you. 
Some of you guys might be supposed to start a Bible study in your workplace. Like there's a couple Christians there and you're going to gather them together and you're going to start a Bible study. But you're also conscious there's a whole bunch of people in your workplace that might think kind of weird of you if you start this Bible study. And that's going to be a big step of faith. But you know what happens? By design, when you take that step of faith, God's going to meet you there. He's a faithful God. He's going to come through. It's going to be successful. You're going to be blessed. And then guess what he's going to do? Call you to a bigger, scarier step of faith. You know why? That's what he does. But here's what hopefully happens later on in your life. This is what I want to happen when I'm about to cash it in and, and meet the Lord. And, and uh, this is what I want to do when I'm reflecting on my life. Is I want to look back and say, wow, look at all these amazing steps that God took me through. Like he called me to this. 30 years ago, and it was a scary step at the time, but I took that one. Then he called me to another one and another one, and God took me on these amazing adventures throughout my entire life. My life was this adventure with God. That's what I want for our entire church. I want you to to walk with God, to grow in Him from from faith to faith, from, from that one scary step of faith where He comes through and you realize He's faithful, then you trust Him in the next scary step, and guess what He's going to do? He's going to come through. Why? Because He's faithful. And when He comes through again, He's going to call you to another one. And He's always going to shake you from a place of ordinary as long as you'll let Him. So here's my challenge for us. The challenge that I gave you guys at the first of the year I hope some of you guys took it up. In fact, I hope all of you took it up, but maybe it's time to take it up again. Take a scary step this week. Take a scary step with God. See, here's the way we ought to view it. God calling us to something new and something unknown, God calling us to something scary should never surprise us, but it should begin to become the pattern of our life. Doesn't mean it's not going to be scary when he calls you to it. Doesn't mean it's not going to make you break out in the sweat and make you nervous to do it. But it shouldn't surprise us because that's who God is and what he does. And our job is to respond in faith and to just take that one step. That's my challenge this week. Take that one step with God, that one thing that he's calling you to. I know so I look in the room and I know some of you guys have taken that scary step just recently. Keep taking those steps with God. Some of you guys have have allowed that part of you to atrophy. You look back on your life and you go, yeah, like 10 years ago, I took a scary step. I haven't taken a step in a while. Because here's here's the flip side of it. I really don't want to look back on that day on my deathbed in great regret, thinking about all of the amazing adventures God could have taken me on. But I only took that step. You know, 30 years ago when he called me to that one step, if I'd have taken that, he'd have called me to another one and then another one. And I would have had this amazing life of walking with God. It would have been scary. And I'd have had to trust in him. But he would always come through. And I don't want to end up on my my deathbed with great regret. Going, man, I missed out on that adventure with God. So the challenge to the church, myself, Take that next step. Take that big, scary step with God. And some of you guys already know what that step is because you're cringing in your seats. 
right? You didn't want this message today because you already know God's already told you. And you've been kind of pushing it a little bit. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll get around to that, you know, some point. But don't do that. Go ahead and take that step so that you then live from faith to faith. Take that step with God, the one that he's already told you about. Some of you guys might be more like me right now. I don't know what that step, that next step of faith is for me. So our challenge is to pray this week. And it's a scary one because I found myself this week realizing, you know, God hasn't taken me on a major step of faith in a little while. So it's time for me to pray that. But when you're actually articulating those words, you're going, Lord, please take me on this major scary step of faith. And you're going, oh my goodness, I just opened myself up to it. Because you know he'll do it. But that's where I was this week. You know, I look back and I go, man, there, there's been some, when God told me, I can, I can remember the very place on Snake Road I was driving when God told me I was going to be a pastor. And I screamed, no! anything but this. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I shape and surf for as happy as could be. And I knew at that moment it was either going to step with him or don't step with him. And, uh, and he's just so incredibly faithful. And he's taken me from one step of faith to another. You know, coming up here is terrifying. I don't know if you guys ever, come up here. Come stand up here. It's absolutely terrifying up here. But you know what? I kind of done it for a little while right now. And, I, and I'm not so scared of it anymore. I come up here in fear and trembling that I represent God right. That, that's one thing that never departs. But as far as like being scared of you guys anymore, I'm not that scared of you guys anymore. And so what that tells me is I need another step. And so our challenge this week is to pray. Lord, with, with like, oh my goodness, it's going to come. Take me on that adventure. Take me on, a, on another adventure. Scare me a little bit. Take me out of, uh, of being comfort. Shake me out of my complacency. Maybe you're where I'm at, where I go, man, I'm ready for an event. I haven't been on it, and I'm not sure what it is. Say, Lord, don't let me become apathetic. Don't let me become distracted. Take me back to that place where I'm 100% dependent on you to come through. Like, I want to go out there again on that ragged edge with you. I want to be in that place and have that feeling again of like, Lord, please don't call me to that. But since you're calling me to that, you have to come through. If you don't come through, I'm toast. Okay, I'm with you. I want to go back right to that place. I want that for us as a church to live out there on that ragged edge with God where you and I just live from this step of faith to the next step of faith. And what it boils down to is this. Do you and I really trust that God will come through? Because that's the only reason we wouldn't go out there, isn't it? If we trust that God will come through in that next step of faith, then we've got no excuse to take the step. And what we do will reveal what we believe about God whether we take the step or not, will be a reflection of our view of God. But church, I've got a big God. I've got a big God. I've got a trustworthy God. Anybody in here got a big God? Anybody in here can trust their God? I'm not convinced 
because that was kind of weak. Come on, guys. Like, really? Like, do you really believe that if he calls you to it, he's going to provide the power to take you through it? So let's do it. Let's be a church characterized by faith. Let's be a people that live from one step of faith to another scary step of faith. I'm not telling you it's not going to be scary, but I'm telling you that your God is big and faithful. He's going to get you through it. I want to be there, out there on the ragged edge with him. So let's do that. And let's pray to that end now. Lord, as much as it scares us, we ask you to do it. As much as we gravitate toward ease and comfort, Lord, we ask you to do it. As, we, as much as we might say that we know you're faithful, Lord, it still scares us when you give us that, that big, scary challenge, that step of faith. But God, together as a church, we declare now that we trust you. We were saved by faith. And we pray, Lord, that that, that, same, that same faith would be observable throughout our whole life that we would walk from one step of faith to the next step of faith. And so together as a church, we ask you, Lord, to speak to each one of us individually. What is that thing? That one thing that you're calling us to this week. Lord, we want to go on those big, hairy exploits with you that scare us and shake us, that require of us trust, that you're going to come through. And so Lord, right now, together as a church, we declare our absolute dependence upon you, and we ask you to move mightily through us. Take us there, because we know that you will sustain us there. You'll, where you lead us, you're going to provide the power. We trust that. We believe that. So we pray that right now you put upon our heart that step, that one step to go with you. And we pray this together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.